the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing. Sam Maupin is engineering today's program. Looking forward to a conversation later this hour with Dr. Greg Jans. He is the author of a very small book with a lot of information. Rebuilding Trust After Betrayal. He'll be joining us later this hour. In the second hour, a conversation I had with Dennis Prager on his Rational Bible series, this uh, latest edition, focusing on Deuteronomy. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. First, a look at some of the day's news. And even before that, I just wanted to mention that the Pastors Appreciation Breakfast was a wonderful event this morning, I want to thank all the pastors and ministry leaders who attended. It was a wonderful time of fellowship and worship. The speaker was um, uh, Alan Jackson was excellent. And we just had a great time together. And it's such a blessing to be able to bless those who serve and labor among us. And so we're grateful that we had the opportunity to do that. And we were allowed to do that by pastors and ministry leaders from the Portland metro area. So thank you to uh, the men and women who are ministering here in our community. So that said, now looking at the uh, the day's headlines, the Parkland shooting, uh, Parkland school shooter was sentenced to life in prison without parole on Wednesday after he perpetrated the 2018 massacre that left 14 students and three teachers dead and another 17 innocent individuals wounded. Now you think about this young person, he's now 17, I believe he was a 16 at the time of the event. His whole life... Um, will be spent in prison from this point forward. Was it worth it to him? What was he thinking? I mean, he was a kid. Um, did he have any concept of what the consequence would be? Had he intended for his own life to end? I, I don't know the answers to those questions, but what a significant waste of a life. Now, because of prison ministry fellowship and other organizations that minister within the prison, it's entirely possible that he will find uh, redemption and reconciliation through Jesus Christ while he's there. And my hope and prayer is that that would be the rest of his story, but such a sad outcome. Uh, Nicholas Cruz, he received 17 life sentences for the murder of each of his victims at Marjorie Stonehill, Stoneman Douglas High School. He stormed the campus four years ago. He opened fire with an AR-15 rifle. He abandoned his gun at the scene and slipped out uh, with evacuating students. Authorities confirmed later before the police apprehended him. The Broward County Circuit Judge Elizabeth Scherer, she announced a punishment of life behind bars rather than the death penalty after the jury failed to come to a unanimous decision to send him him to death row as required by Florida law. Three of the 12 jurors voted to give Cruz life in prison. Thank you, family members, for the privilege of learning about each and every one of your loved ones, the judge said. I can tell you they will not be forgotten. Uh, If you could take the pain away or if we could take the pain away and carry it for you for just five minutes so that you could breathe, we would. Cruz pled guilty in October of 2021 to 17 counts of murder. Victims and their family members gave tearful, furious testimonies about the emotional scars the experience left them with. I won't go over them. I think you can probably imagine um, some of the things that were said. 
life in prison without the possibility of parole. He's currently 17. Playing politics, President Biden's war on disinformation is ramping up despite criticism. And in a Twitter tiff, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is complaining that her accounts conveniently isn't working on Twitter as her feud with Elon Musk continues. And for the win, control of the Senate hinges on these volatile races. As Election Day nears and the nation prepares to head to the polls, it's still unclear which party has the best chance to win control of the Senate. But four volatile races in different regions of the country will likely determine the balance of power between Democrats and Republicans. Now, sadly, the election is about more than just the balance of power and which of the two parties ends up on top. The good of the people is what ultimately this is supposed to be about. Well, the Senate races in Arizona, Nevada, Georgia and Pennsylvania are ground zero in the battle for Congress's upper chamber, with polling averages showing no clear advantage for either Republicans or Democrats. And the candidates in each race are clamoring to be the win um, that brings their respective party over the 50 seat threshold for a majority. Election Day, of course, next Tuesday, November 8th. Russia's reinforcements, uh, their weapons and troop shortage, has forced it to turn to other rogue nations and some surprising sources in an effort to sustain its invasion of Ukraine. Analysts predicted Russia's invasion would last only days or weeks due to the confidence in a superior military force with vast supplies and an overwhelming advantage in manpower. But nine months later, nine months later, Moscow has looked to source weapons and uh, troops from other countries. Well, dark forces that uh, thirst for power, President Biden suggests voting for Republicans is a threat to democracy. Now, one wonders, how do you go from you are going to destroy the country if you vote on one side of the ledger and then these men and women gather in Washington, D.C. to try to solve the people's problems? This kind of uh, hyperbolic language is unhelpful, regardless of who is extending it, Republican or Democrat. But the president should be ashamed of himself. He is the president of the United States. And he gave a speech yesterday uh, from the um, uh, the grounds of the, the White House. Uh, and it was a political rally, essentially condemning one political party over the other. He said when he campaigned, he was going to represent the whole of the nation. Leave the campaigning, I would suggest, to the campaigners. And be the president in a family feud. A Democratic candidate for the state house in Washington is involved in an outgoing or rather an ongoing feud with his family about the veracity of his military service. Well, the father of Clyde Shavers, Democratic candidate for Washington state's 10th legislative district, claims in a recently published letter that his son lied about the details of his service in the U.S. Navy, according to local outlet Herald Net. Well, Clyde Shavers has run on a platform of emphasizing his service in the U.S. Navy, claiming to have been a nuclear submarine officer, a position that requires a great amount of training and three separate courses. Well, Clyde was never a submarine officer, not even for a day, his father wrote. Brett Shavers, a Marine veteran, went on to dismiss any notions that his son served proudly in the military, going so far as to say Clyde Shavers has disdain for enlisted service members. I wouldn't want to have to vote in that election. In debate fallout, a Fox News poll reports that half of Pennsylvanians say the Senate debate is uh, a a factor in this uh, vote and dismissed and demonized Latino and black Republicans in midterms are pushing back against out of touch liberals in the media who suggest they are not either black or Latino if they vote in a particular way. On biased reporting, a midterm study finds the mainstream media gave Republicans 87 percent more negative coverage 
than Democrats. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next couple of segments, a conversation with Dr. Greg Jans, rebuilding trust after betrayal. And in the second hour, a classic interview with Dennis Prager on his Rational Bible series, focusing on the book of Deuteronomy. Well, CNN's old new face, Jake Tapper, is moving back to his old time slot following the ratings struggle in primetime there. And so many shenanigans. Georgia voters are sounding off on election fairness ahead of the midterms. Honoring America's best, New England restaurants will celebrate Veterans Day by serving over 20,000 free scratch-made meals to heroes. President Biden's primetime speech amounts to vote for Democrats or else... The National Review weighs in, saying Wednesday evening, the president argued that to preserve your right to vote for the candidate of your choice, you have no other option but to vote for the candidate of his choice. The president offered once again the warning that certain candidates wanted to take away your right to vote. This is once again a reference to the Georgia voting law that Biden compared to Jim Crow 2.0 that so far has resulted in a record high number of early voters. The major television networks didn't carry this speech live, but the Cable networks did. It was the right choice for a speech that amounted to a demand that the public vote for his party or irrevocably uh, collapse into autocracy. Katie Pavlich writes that Biden claiming we don't settle political differences with riots is a complete um, wiping of what happened during 2020, the presidential election, the most expensive riot in American history, courtesy of the left. Billions of dollars in damage, many people killed, communities ruined. Well, President Biden plans to spend $13 billion to reduce energy costs. New data reveal how the administration's policies has undermined the U.S. energy industry, which was once the most innovative in the world. The White House announced Wednesday that the administration will spend $13.5 billion total to directly cover rapidly increasing household utility bills and help homes become more energy efficient ahead of the winter months. The Department of Health and Human Services will give $4.5 billion to local governments to help low-income people pay their electricity bills, which will increase further during the winter months due to natural gas shortages. The Energy Department will also spend $9 billion on tax credits for households that buy heat pumps and insulate their homes to make them more energy efficient. Roughly 17% of American households have recently not paid their energy bill or paid it late due to financial constraints. The U.S. is calling for Iran to be removed from the U.N.'s Commission on Women. Why they were there in the first place is a mystery. Well, the United States on Wednesday called for Iran to be expelled from the Commission on Women, citing the regime's systematic oppression of women and its violent crackdown on street protests. The U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfeld, she said it was not enough to condemn Iran's brutal acts of repression and violence. And that we must back up our words with actions. Speaking at the U.N., Thomas Greenfield uh, said that the U.S. will work with other countries to remove Iran from the 45-member U.N. Commission on the Status of Women, saying the international community could not allow the commission's work to be undermined from within. The Border Patrol Union is defending agents' use of crowd control measures. A Border Patrol Union fired back at the American Civil Liberties Union on Wednesday after the left-wing organization condemned moves by agents to deal with illegal immigrants who had, had allegedly assaulted them. The group of Venezuelan migrants illegally crossing into El Paso, Texas, as they waved an enormous flag, the agency said one of the protesters assaulted an agent with the flagpole while another threw a rock at the agents, injuring one in the process. That, in turn, led the Border Patrol to initiate crowd control measures. 
This is the latest in a long line of abuses carried out by the CBP, the ACLU suggests. Our government's failed attempt at preventing people from seeking protection in the U.S. led to death and suffering. The Biden administration must restore a humane process for seeking asylum. Even CNN hosts are questioning Democrat Katie Hobbs' refusal to debate her gubernatorial opponent, The Arizona candidate, the hopeful Carrie Lake, heralded CNN host Don Lemon's grilling of her rival Katie Hobbs over her decision to shun a debate. During the exchange, Hobbs defended her position that debating Lake risks amplifying her 2020 election denialism and suggested that it's too late to reverse course with less than a week before the midterm elections. Carrie Lake said, big yikes, even Don Lemon is calling Katie Hobbs out. Bless her heart. Well, New Hampshire's gubernatorial candidate held their first debate since President Trump endorsed retired General Don Bolduc. The USA Today reports that New Hampshire Democratic Senator Maggie Hassan and Republican Don Bolduc debated Wednesday night after the two U.S. Senate candidates previously went head to head last week with questions on abortion, inflation and immigration, among others. The debate was the first since Bullock uh, received an endorsement from the former president. Breitbart weighs in, saying recent polling shows General Bolduc is leading Hassan by one point with three percent undecided. The general took the lead after trailing by 11 points six weeks ago. The general has also run a grassroots campaign while being outspent by nine million dollars. Meanwhile, Liz Cheney applauded Nancy Pelosi, but doesn't believe Republican control would be good for the country. She commented that the uh, speaker um, is a tremendous leader during a Tuesday interview, predicted Republicans would damage the country should they reclaim a House majority in next week's midterm elections. She will not be returning as she did not win her primary. Russia rejoins the wheat agreement with Ukraine and removes its naval blockade. On Wednesday, it was rejoined. Uh, rejoining the agreement that guarantees safe passage for ships carrying vital grain exports from Ukraine, a move that may help ease concerns about global food supplies that were raised when Moscow suspended its participation in the pact last week. The decision to reverse course and rejoin the agreement was announced by the Russian Ministry of Defense just days after Moscow cited drone attacks on the city uh, it, uh, it occupied in the uh, Crimea as the reason for its withdrawal. Excessive alcohol use is leading to a staggering percentage of deaths among Americans. U.S. News reports that for anyone who thinks alcoholism isn't a deadly disease, a new government report shows alcohol abuse caused nearly 13 percent of deaths in American adults under 65 between 2015 and 2019. The statistics were even more grim among younger U.S. adults. In people aged 20 to 49, alcohol abuse was the cause of 20 percent of deaths. The Washington Commanders NFL team could be for sale. The NFL's Washington team could be for sale soon after owners Dan and Tanya Snyder said that they have hired Bank of America Securities to consider potential transactions. And while the Snyder's announcement didn't specifically mention plans to sell the team, hiring a major bank is often a prelude to such a move. A Pelosi attack update questions regarding how a crazed perpetrator was able to break into House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's residence in San Francisco and attack her husband, Paul, are slowly being answered, though those um, answers are painting a rather incompetent picture of the U.S. Capitol Police. It's now known the Capitol Police had a live security camera feed 
on Pelosi's house, but nobody was monitoring it during the break-in. Furthermore, no alarm went off when the perpetrator broke a glass door at the back of the house to gain entry. The cameras were placed around Pelosi's um, San Francisco residence eight years ago, and for months after the January 6th Capitol riot, the SFPD maintained a police cruiser outside her residence 24 hours a day. However, when Nancy Pelosi leaves for Washington, the security detail monitoring her home evidently takes a break. When asked if the 911 call and police body camera footage was uh, will be released to the public, District Attorney Brooke Jenkins flatly said no. She added, revealing that evidence through the media is not appropriate. Well, the Fed raised interest rates another 7.75 percent in uh, an effort to fight Bidenflation. And leftists are lamenting that voter ID laws are targeting transgenders since one's identity is required. The White House deleted a tweet flagging a flagged rather by Twitter that credited Biden for the Social Security cost of living increase and sharing the faces of death. Sheriffs are showcasing graphic evidence of the rising body count at the border. Arizona is using shipping containers to plug border gaps. Bidenflation sends school lunch costs soaring. Ingredient prices are up 50 percent as families struggle to afford the price hike. Well, on this day in history, excuse me. 1839, the first opium war between China and Britain breaks out. 1911, the Chevrolet Motor Company is founded in Detroit by Louis Chevrolet and William Durant. The company would be acquired by General Motors in 1918. 1936, President Franklin Roosevelt wins a landslide election victory over Republican challenger um, Alfred Alf Landon. 1957, the Soviet Union launches Sputnik 2, the second man-made satellite into orbit. On board is a dog named Leica would be sacrificed in the experiment. 1964, President Lyndon Johnson soundly defeats Republican Barry Goldwater to win the White House term in his own right. 1979, five Communist Workers' Party members are killed in a clash with heavily armed Ku Klux Klansmen and neo-Nazis during an anti-Klan protest in Greensboro, North Carolina. 1992, Democrat Bill Clinton is elected the 46th, 42nd president of the United States, defeating President George Herbert Walker Bush. 1992, in Illinois, Democrat Carol Mosley Brown, she becomes the first black woman to be elected to the United States Senate, defeating Republican Richard S. Williamson. 1995, President Bill Clinton dedicates a memorial at Arlington National Cemetery to the 270 victims of the bombing of Pan Am Flight 103. In 1997, the Supreme Court let stand California's groundbreaking Proposition 209, which bans race and gender preference in hiring and school admissions. And finally, in 2017, Army Sergeant Bo Bergdahl, who walked away from his post in Afghanistan and triggered a search that left some of his comrades severely wounded, is spared a prison sentence by a military judge in North Carolina. President Trump blasted the decision as a complete and total disgrace. Up next, Dr. Greg Jantz. He's the author of Rebuilding Trust After Betrayal. And in our second hour, Dennis Prager. So stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Say a best friend undermines you. A spouse is in... Um, engages in infidelity. A relative steals from your family. Betrayal strikes at the core of our capacity to trust. It crushes our belief that a person we love 
could hurt us. Well, in a little book called Rebuilding Trust After Betrayal, Dr. Gregory Jans, he offers expert advice for people wondering, can this relationship be saved? Well, Dr. Jans takes you step by step through how to rebuild trust after betrayal. The same healing grace that knits broken bones and restores us to strength after illness is well able to reconcile wounded hearts and renew love for one another. Well, Dr. Gregory Jans is the founder of The Center, a place of hope in Edmonds, Washington. He was voted a top 10 facility for depression treatment in the United States. Dr. Jans pioneered whole person care in the 1980s and is a world-renowned expert on depression, anxiety, eating disorders, technology, addiction, and abuse. He is an innovator in the treatment of mental health, utilizing a variety of therapies, including nutrition, sleep therapy, spiritual counseling, and advanced DBT technology. Dr. Jans is a best-selling author of 40 books, and a go-to media authority on mental and behavioral health afflictions, appearing on a number of uh, national networks. Well, today we have him right here on KPDQ to talk about his very helpful uh, little book, Rebuilding Trust After Betrayal, Hope and Help for Broken Relationships. Dr. Jans, thanks so much for uh, joining us once again. Hey, it's good to hear your voice and to be with you today. It's, It's a hard topic. It is a hard topic, and yet it's one that will touch virtually all of our lives at one point or another. What led you to take up this topic at this time to help us kind of walk through what can be one of the most painful events in uh, the life of a relationship? Well, I think there is a lot of distrust out there. There's been a lot of hurt. And as you're right, most of us can really relate to this. We've all had a situation where maybe we thought we had a super trusting friend or a loved one and something happened. And the word I'll use is traumatic. It was traumatic and it was betrayal and trust was broken. And betrayal is one of those emotions that throws you into shock. It's like, what? And and then you go from shock to anger to disbelief to feeling enraged, feeling depressed, and it, it's the whole range of emotions. And said, it ahead. comes in different forms. Please, go on. No, I just, betrayal comes in different forms. Sometimes we think in terms of fidelity in a marriage, that's certainly betrayal, but it could be a broken trust in a relationship, maybe an employer. Um, or something happened in the workplace where there was betrayal. You suggest that betrayal is a form of trauma and that trauma is never compartmentalized, that it spills out in all directions and it affects us in ways that we may not even be fully aware. Exactly. Because it may teach us. Here's, you know, here's the... Georgine, the issue, it may teach us not to trust people. Mm-hmm. Nobody, I can't trust anybody, and therefore I won't. And we kind of have that position. And we end up being uh, handicapped in relationships. Uh, we don't allow ourselves to have close or intimate relationships anymore because I'm going to be betrayed. It happened to me before. And so we put up all these guards because we don't want to ever experience that pain again. Reconciliation, is that the ultimate goal when there has been betrayal? Uh, What do we seek at the end of the experience that somehow reconciles the the events that uh, have traumatized us? What's the goal? Well, let me say that reconciliation is not always possible, and it probably is not really the end goal, because uh, sometimes a person 
maybe that you've been really hurt, but maybe they turn it and they blame you. They go, well, I wouldn't have done that. It was really your fault. You caused me to do that behavior. And and so the tables got turned. And uh, so that's not reconciliation. And you just got re-victimized. So the goal is not to carry around that pain where it turns into resentment, it turns into embitterment, and where it's really self-destructive to you. That's the goal, to be free of that, which requires forgiveness. It does require forgiveness, which it seems to me is sort of a a supernatural thing, given the depth of some levels of of betrayal. You write about the aftershock of betrayal. What should we expect, kind of the fallout as we're living through the the fallout and are even contemplating what to do next? Well, as we live through it, and and let me just say, um, take a pause allow the time, there's a grieving, there's a grieving of a loss of a relationship, and be careful. Our our tendency is to do something that's self-destructive. Uh, turn to alcohol, turn to misuse of prescription drugs, escape in some form of unhealthy behavior because we want to feel a different way. That's one thing. And the other is really to understand I'm going to grow through this, and with God's help, I'm going to grow stronger, and I am not going to pick up that excess luggage of hurt and resentment and carry that into my future. Those are decisions. Sometimes we need help with that. It's so overwhelming, and it just we need help to figure out how to do that, and that's where an appropriate uh, counselor could step in. But we need to remember, wow, I am not going to let this be poison to my future. You refer to the foundations of healthy relationships as being trust and respect. When those are gone, what's the consequence? If I don't have trust in you, I will not have a close relationship. I will have suspicion. I will probably, if I don't have trust, I'm going to be on the blame side probably. And I don't have anything solid to stand on. If I have trust, I have the confidence to know that even, let's say, with a spouse, okay, uh, I'm going to have the courage to tell the truth because I know my spouse loves me. I don't have to have the fear of rejection. My spouse, if I made a mistake, I may, and maybe it hurts, but um, I have the strength of the relationship, and I am going to build on that by telling the truth. What are the essential ingredients for rebuilding trust after betrayal? That has to be one of the most difficult things to do because you presumably had trust before the betrayal and the possibility of of future disappointment always looms. Where do you start? Yeah, where do you start? Oh, and first of all, it can feel so overwhelming I'm over. No, I really can't have um, a relationship. It just feels so overwhelming. Well, one is we do have to put some time, allow some time to pass, but we've got to keep ourselves growing, keep ourselves in a growth mindset, keep ourselves growing spiritually. Um, and as you trust 
your relationship with Christ. It's going to allow you to build into other people's lives. As you take, and I think sometimes they're baby steps, they're small risk, as you plug into a group, um, perhaps a, a, a group that could be appropriate um, for you, as you begin to re-socialize, okay? Because if we're hurt, we pull away from people. We tend to isolate and we tend to pull away. And I'm really saying, you know what? Okay, you're wounded and we need healing, but I have to also re-engage and re-engage in relationships. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, talking with Dr. Greg Jans, his latest book, Rebuilding Trust After Betrayal. And it's possible for that to be the case, hope and help for broken relationships. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment, so stay with us. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Greg Jans, author of Rebuilding Trust After Betrayal. We had a, a question from a caller who asked, if you suspect a loved one, a spouse, for example, is involved in activity that is uh, betrayal, but is unwilling to acknowledge it or to admit it, what's the, the right course to take? This can be very uh, challenging when we're not sure if we're the victim of betrayal, but we suspect. Yeah, and one of the things that happens is we develop a high suspicion. And I think one of the things then um, we need to be very careful because um, we want to make sure that we're not living in such a hyper-anxiety state that we start to see things that are not there. That can happen too. But there comes a time where we need to voice and confront our concerns. And there's a time where you, you say, I'm noticing some things. Um, can I talk to you about it? So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to ask for permission to talk about it. The next thing I'm going to do is be careful how I choose my words. Um, but I can believe that um, I'm concerned that I'm seeing some things and I need to talk to you about it. Can you tell me what's going on? Now, you probably noticed that the second question was not a yes or no question. My first question was, I'm asking permission to talk about something. The person will say yes. My second question is a question, can you please help me understand and tell me what is going on? And, and I, I'm going to pause and listen. And maybe, maybe somebody starts to confess something. I'm not going to interrupt them. I'm going to let them talk, and I'm going to continue asking questions. Be careful about why questions. Why or how could you ever do this? Um, continue to ask questions um, that really uh, gather more information, like um, can you tell me anything more about this? And just at first our goal is to listen, and sometimes there's denial, and sometimes we get truth in small, small teaspoons of truth. And it, the full truth doesn't come till later. Um, but make sure as well that you have somebody that you can talk to. Is it a counselor? Is it a pastor? But somebody that is in your court that also can give you feedback. Uh, we don't want to go this alone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, how can a victim of betrayal ever know for sure if a betrayer 
has genuinely changed. There's always that, and you sort of referenced that in your answer to the uh, listener's question, but there can be that nagging doubt. How is it possible to, to know for sure that a betrayer has genuinely changed? Or is that the goal? Well, um, the betrayer who asks for forgiveness, number two, will show remorse, and number three is willing to do whatever it takes to rebuild trust, including the time necessary. When I have sincere remorse, and I whatever it may be, maybe I know need to go and get some help. Uh, maybe I'm, I need to be committed to some Christian counseling. Maybe I've got to uh, do some things that are going to rebuild trust over time. It's not instantly given. In fact, you write about um, healing as a process rather than an event. There is no magic pill. It's a process that can be difficult, challenging, but it will take time. Absolutely. It will take time. And it will take um, time, and there will probably be bumps in the road. Because remember, betrayal, there's the initial going through everything and the initial shock, and then three months pass, and you think, oh, I'm, I'm over it, and then those emotions hit you again. And you go, wow, where did that come from? Because uh, betrayal, there can be people, situations, but things that re-trigger, and really it's that post-traumatic stress that's being re-triggered. You refer to um, uh, the fact that betrayal never happens in a vacuum. What do you mean by that? And are you suggesting that the person who has been betrayed bears some responsibility? Can you explain what you meant by that? Well, there is usually more to the story, okay? It never excuses wrong behavior. Um, And we, a person who made it, let's say a person made a decision, they had an affair. That's always wrong. That's never, ever right. Um, Now, there may be some things that led up to that, but that was still a decision that person made and not a healthy or right decision. That in mind, we need to remember that um, there were some things that happened that led up to that betrayal. Unmet needs. Uh, Maybe something happened in the past to this person. Uh, There was a vulnerability. So it just doesn't happen instantly and all at once. How important are choosing good boundaries in uh, moving forward in a relationship? Very important. Boundaries are uh, part of the guardrails that keep us healthy. It's part of the guardrails that will keep us healthy. And what we're saying by that is, We need to protect ourselves, and a boundary is not about punishing. uh, Boundaries can be confusing. A boundary is about uh, keeping a relationship clean. A boundary is about uh, not allowing things that are inappropriate to enter in. So keep keep that in mind. And by the way, um, we always, if we don't work through betrayal, it will lead us down a path of resentment, unforgiveness, and bitterness. It's not a good path to stay on. If we deal with, and we'll regret it, if we deal and work through the painful, painful process of betrayal, um, we will grow stronger and we will not regret it. 
We're talking about the book Rebuilding Trust After Betrayal, Hope and Help for Broken Relationships. And my guest is Dr. Gregory Jans. Um, he is uh, the author of some 40 books, host of a national radio program, regular contributor to Psychology Today, and much, much more. He's also the founder of The Center, A Place of Hope in Edmonds, Washington. What advice do you give about regaining emotional equilibrium, and what does that look like? Yeah, emotional, that's, that's getting rebalanced. That's getting renewed. That's getting reset, mm-hmm. and it's a, it's a process. That's um, doing a checkpoint is anger, fear, and guilt. Uh, are those toxic emotions? Am I dealing with those appropriately? So, yes, we can do this. Um, those are the three deadly emotions that you have to look for when there's been betrayal. A lot of anger, rage. Does it keep coming back? Uh, do I get full of anxiety and fear that I'm staying away from people in relationships? Uh, or am I carrying a lot of guilt that this whole thing was my problem? That's called false guilt. Our, our listeners um, who are in the midst of discovering a betrayal, who are uh, trying to recover from uh, and restore a relationship. As you mentioned earlier, not all situations warrant the rebuilding of trust, but in cases where the uh, the situation, the relationship warrants um, reconciliation, how can they find your book and help in, to, in their efforts to rebuild relationship? Well, um, should be, the book should be available wherever your favorite books are. <laughs> so, and visit me at aplaceofhope.com. That's another way you can get a book, aplaceofhope.com. Well, I so appreciate your making resources like this available uh, to help people think through and ultimately walk through a situation that can be very painful and, as you point out, traumatizing, but are recoverable. And also how to apply wisdom in a situation to determine whether or not rebuilding trust is warranted because, as you point out, there are situations where that may not uh, be the case. Uh, Thank you so much for your work and for talking with us today about your latest on Rebuilding Trust After Betrayal. Good to be with you today. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Again, the book is uh, available, um, and it's published by Aspire Press. It should be easily available, but you can also be in touch with uh, Dr. Jans for more information about the work that he is doing and other resources that might be helpful. Up next, we've got news and traffic here at the top of the hour. And in the second hour, a conversation I had with Dennis Prager on his uh, Rational Bible series, this time focusing on Deuteronomy. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, a conversation I had with Dennis Prager on his Rational Bible. Deuteronomy is the focus of this latest edition in this five-part series. Well, I all eyes will be on nine states this election day, as voters head to the polls, to determine which party will win control of the Senate. Well, the Cook Political Report has the Senate races in Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin listed as a toss-up states, while North Carolina and Ohio lean Republican, Colorado and New Hampshire lean Democrat. Well, both differing election laws in each state means that in some races, we may not know who won and by extension, which party will have control of the Senate for days. It's a bit frustrating. You live through this season in which you're inundated on every conceivable platform with political ads. It's finally over, and then you have to wait for the outcome. Well, even results uh, that are released on election night 
are unofficial and incomplete and therefore Close races can fluctuate more as uh, more of the ballots are actually counted. Well, in Georgia, the closely watched election between Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker could head to a runoff under the state law if neither candidate receives a majority of the vote, as uh, as happened in 2020 when two uh, Georgia runoff races determined control of the Senate. Well, so far, neither Warnock or Walker has polled at 50 percent. In the event there is no clear majority, a runoff would be held in December. Georgia is likely to have election results on election night or the morning after unless the race is particularly close. And it could be particularly close. Well, lots of states allow election officials to start validating mail-in ballots well before Election Day. In Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, officials are not allowed to begin that process until Election Day, which could cause the count to take up well a bit longer in those states. Pennsylvania's top election official said that this year state officials um, again expect results to take at least a few days. Well, that doesn't mean anything bad is happening, Chapman went on to say. And that's Lee Chapman, the top elections official in Pennsylvania, speaking to The New York Times. It's just the election process playing out. Election officials are ensuring that every single vote counts only very slowly. A spokesman for the Wisconsin Elections Commission, meanwhile, told um, media outlets that given that unofficial results in both the 2018 and 2020 general elections weren't largely complete until the early morning hours after Election Day, it would be reasonable to assume it may take until then for officials to result to get the results uh, tabulated and posted this year. In Arizona, the secretary of state's office begins uh, posting results at 8 p.m. local time. Voters have until 7 p.m. on Election Day to return their early ballots. The state will uh, canvas election results. On December 5th, December 5th, neither the uh, counties nor the secretary of state call elections or declare the results prior to the canvas of the election. A spokesperson for the Arizona secretary of state says, however, I can say that on election night, we will have results for ballots cast in person on election day and early ballots received before election day. Well, in Colorado, where Democratic Senator Michael Bennett is facing off against Republican Joe, uh, Joe O'Day, results will be reported by counties to the state's election night reporting system beginning at 7 o'clock p.m. when polls close there. Counties are required to upload results at least once by 8 p.m. and again by 9 p.m. In Colorado, results are not reported based on the uh, manner in which ballots are cast. A spokesperson for the Secretary of State's office says, for example, ballots cast in person are not reported separately or before ballots returned by mail or drop-in or drop-box. However, as counties can start reviewing signatures once ballots are received and begin processing ballots for scanning 15 days before Election Day, early in-person ballots and mail ballots received before Election Day will likely be scanned prior to in-person and mail ballots on Election Day. Well, results in Nevada, where there's a tight race between Republican Adam Laxalt and Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, could take even longer. Counties have four days to count late-arriving mail ballots and allow voters or um, I should say voters two additional days to fix mailed ballots that arrive in envelopes with errors or missing information. Uh, It will definitely be more than the day after the election for final results there, uh, according to the uh, uh, county interim registrar of voters speaking on what's happening in that state. And then in New Hampshire, 
By contrast, expect uh, they expect that voters will uh, know the unofficial votes by the end of election night or the following morning, the Secretary of State's office said. North Carolina, where GOP Representative Ted Budd is facing off against Democrat Sherry Beasley, also expects to have count totals quickly. The state board anticipates that the unofficial results reported by the end of election night will include about 99 percent of all ballots cast in North Carolina in the 2022 general election. In Ohio, unless something completely unforeseen happens, they'll have results election night, just as they do in every election, according to the Ohio Secretary of State's office there. So how soon do we know the outcome of the election, the makeup of the uh, uh, House and the Senate? Well, that all depends. Speaking of elections, Benjamin Netanyahu has won in Israel's latest election. He's drawing a muted response from the U.S. as policymakers wrestle with the implications for foreign policy in the Middle East. Well, sitting Prime Minister Yair Lapid on Thursday conceded the election to Netanyahu after it became clear the former prime minister's coalition would allow him to regain his seat as leader of the country. But Netanyahu's win occurs while President Joe Biden sits in the White House, presenting a somewhat awkward matchup of ideals and policy aims from the U.S. and Israel. Senator Ted uh, Ted Cruz, the Republican out of Texas, was the first U.S. politician to congratulate uh, Netanyahu on his his victory, writing in a tweet that Israel had a robust turnout and the people made the clear choice to reelect Netanyahu. Now, Senator Cruz said that uh, Congress can and should act to ensure that Israel and the U.S. remain in step on key issues such as maritime borders and territorial integrity. The Israeli people have made a clear choice for Netanyahu to once again lead their country and form a government, Cruz said. Unfortunately, the Biden administration has spent the last two years pressuring and undermining our Israeli allies, including most recently to cede maritime territory to Hezbollah. Uh, There's no doubt they will uh, now try to increase that pressure, the senator predicted. Congress can and will provide aggressive oversight to ensure that doesn't happen and to preserve the bonds of the U.S.-Israeli relationship. Well, the statement was a stark contrast to those put out by U.S. Ambassador to Israel Thomas Nides and the White House, which echoed the same uh, statement uh, that they were pleased to see such strong voter turnout for the Knesset but that it was uh, too early to speculate on the exact composition of the next government coalition until all the votes are counted, end quote. Meanwhile, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, he posted a picture of himself with Netanyahu's new book, Bibi, My Story, and wrote, What a great victory for Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel. Hard times require strong leaders. Welcome back. Israel and Lebanon only last month agreed to a new deal on their shared maritime border that would see the nations share the rights to undersea natural gas reserves in the eastern Mediterranean. Lapid has uh, called the deal an historic achievement that will strengthen Israel's security, inject billions into Israel's economy and ensure the stability of our northern border. But Netanyahu has promised to neutralize the deal if his party regained control in November. So rather interestingly, despite all of his legal troubles, Netanyahu is back as the leader of Israel. Well, in other news, President Joe Biden claimed that Democrats will protect Social Security and that Republicans threaten its future in a speech on Tuesday. Social Security futures, uh, its future is not secure. The program is running out of time and money and recent increases in debt and spending have crowded out options for reform. Now, some of the things Americans deserve to know so that they can make informed decisions about their own futures and about Social Security reforms would be uh, which ones would be best for them. Number one, workers' Social Security taxes aren't set aside for their retirement. 
It's not a fund that's sitting there waiting for you to draw from it. Despite the notion that the Social Security taxes that workers pay are saved to fund their future benefits, the federal government has consistently used Social Security's revenue to pay for other other, uh, government spending, issuing Social Security's trust fund IOUs in return. Social Security is not secure. If policymakers do nothing, the retirement program will be insolvent in 2034 and benefits will be cut by 23 percent across the board. Social Security has a 20.4 trillion dollar shortfall. Part of the reason Social Security is so popular is because it's paid out more in benefits than it makes in taxes. The program combined old age and survivors insurance and disability insurance programs are scheduled to pay $20.4 trillion more in benefits than they will collect in taxes over the next 75 years. The cost of inaction by Congress is exponential. Between just 2010 and 2020, Social Security's combined retirement and disability programs unfunded obligations surged from $8.6 trillion dollars to $71,000 per household, or $20.4 trillion, and $157,000 per household. Now, those costs will continue to grow until policymakers confront Social Security's insolvency. Social Security is a bad deal for current and future workers. Social Security may have been a good deal for Biden's generation, but it's not a good deal for the current and future worker. A Heritage Foundation analysis showed that the average young worker could receive nearly three times as much as Social Security can provide if they were uh, instead unable to save Social Security taxes in their own retirement accounts. Even low-wage workers make about $20,000 a year, or making about, could have 40% larger incomes in retirement as a result of saving on their own. Democrats' plan for Social Security would hasten insolvency and exacerbate shortfalls, and Democrats' plan for Social Security would require a $3,000 tax hike for a typical household. So despite what the president had to say and the threat that the Republicans pose, I think there's a lot about Social Security that is lesser, less known, but threatens the program's solvency over time. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, a conversation I had with Dennis Prager on his Rational Bible series, the latest installment, Deuteronomy. That's next on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Hey, the question is, is the Bible, the most influential book in world history, still relevant? And why do so many people dismiss it as being irrelevant, irrational, immoral, or all of the above? Well, the Rational Bible Deuteronomy by my next guest, Dennis Prager, national radio host and best-selling author of the Rational Bible series, explains the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible, and demonstrates how it remains profoundly relevant, both to the great issues of our day and to each individual. If you doubt the existence of God because you think believing in God is irrational, this is a book you need to pick up. And read. Well, my guest is Dennis Prager. He is the founder of the online nonprofit Prager University and the author of nine best selling books on politics, religion, and happiness. Tens of millions of people watch his videos, and millions more listen daily to his nationally syndicated broadcast um, radio show. With his knowledge of biblical Hebrew, he has uh, taught the Bible to people of every background for 40 years, and now he continues doing just that with his latest. It's simply Deuteronomy. The Rational Bible. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. 
Well, Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Torah, the third installment in your um, your series on the Rational Bible. Explain what the Rational Bible is, that title, and why Deuteronomy? I have as my vehicle to the Bible and to God reason. Uh, This is almost uh, heretical to say, but I don't accept things that don't make sense. That's that's my nature. I'm not saying it's good it's or bad. It's just my nature. And over a course of a, the course of a lifetime of teaching and studying the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, I came to realize that with enough research, everything makes sense. And I and I try to bring that to people because if you want the roots of the chaos that now reigns in America and in many other places in the Western world, it is that there is no longer any transcendent source of wisdom or of morality for that matter. And it is, it was the Bible. That's why we call it a Judeo Christian civilization because the Jewish old Testament and the Christian new Testament, of course, the old Testament is also Christian. So both, so I, I have been able to make sense of this. Uh, obviously, uh, I have this gift from early uh, on of knowing biblical Hebrew very well. That was a big help, but it's not enough, obviously. And gradually, I came to realize this is there's a reason it's the most influential book in history. There's a reason that the civilization that is based on the Bible, Western civilization, had more human rights, had more had more affluence, had more science, had more of everything precious than any other civilization in the world. That has nothing to do with race. It's an absurdity to even think it has anything to do with race. It's simply a values issue. So I have taken it upon myself to write this up. It's the hardest endeavor of my life to make to make clear what every verse means. But that's what I've done. If people want to check out how people have reacted to Genesis and Exodus, there are 4,000 reviews of those two volumes on Amazon. And now Deuteronomy is coming out in a few days. It's the fifth, as you pointed out, of the five books. I'm working on Numbers, the fourth, and then finally I will do the third, Leviticus. Now, Deuteronomy is unique in that most of the law is found there. Describe that book, the challenge of providing commentary on that book, and why it's important for us to understand what have been some of the controversial questions about Deuteronomy. It will come as a surprise to you, I suspect. It came a big surprise to me, and I, I admit, sadly, I found out about this after I had already written Deuteronomy. But I found out maybe a month ago or two months ago, a a historian of America at the American University reported research done to find out what book or what books the founders of the United States cited most frequently. In second place was Montesquieu, the French Enlightenment thinker, and in first place was Deuteronomy, and I was blown away. Mm. I'm not shocked, but I didn't expect it. 
I thought if there would be a biblical book, it might have been Exodus, because the founders saw themselves as a second Israel leaving Europe, like the Israelites left Egypt. But lo and behold, it turns out to have been Deuteronomy. The book has more laws than any other single book. The book is Moses' recapitulation of everything that preceded it. And uh, it is filled with laws about everything, every aspect of life. I think my favorite, because it, it gives people an idea of how unique the, the Torah and the Bible are, is a law in Deuteronomy that if you are fighting in a war, you're a soldier in a war, and you see a woman that you want, who's part of the nation that you have just fought, you may not touch her. If you want, you can bring her to your home. You must not touch her for 30 days while she mourns her family. Those are the words. And then if you want to just so much as touch her, you have to marry her. Can you imagine if the armies of the world had followed this in the history of, of, of warfare, where rape was as common as shooting your, your enemy? So that, that was written 3,200 years ago. So people ask, is it still relevant? My God, it's more relevant than ever. You've written an essay in the book called Fear of God is Morally and Psychologically Necessary. Can you make that case for us? I mean, as a as a Christian, that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, and the use of the word fear, you, you make a point that that word can be translated in a couple of ways. Talk a bit about the necessity and importance of the fear of God and what Deuteronomy tells us about that. Well, as it happens, uh, it is translated often as revere, but it's incorrect. It does mean fear. And as I have put it all of my life, if more Germans feared God God than Hitler, there wouldn't have been a Holocaust. If more Russians feared God than Stalin, there wouldn't have been Gulag. Fear of God is one of the most important moral ideas ever conceived that I feel I have to morally answer to God because there is divine punishment and reward. A professor at the University of Oregon did a peer-reviewed paper published in a scientific journal which showed they they, they analyzed thousands and thousands of people in, in like 80 countries where people believed in hell there was less violence. The notion that People will act beautifully without reward or punishment. It's as idiotic as people will drive carefully without the speed laws or punishments. That is that. So fear of God is is the, in some ways the basis of a moral society. Uh, I just would add something that I think people should note. And again, it's a classic example of biblical wisdom that runs completely counter to our thinking today. There are two beings that the Torah, the first five books, tell us to fear. God and our mother and father. That's it. You should fear no one else and nothing else. And of course, to the modern mind, which is usually a rather primitive mind, unsophisticated mind, 
they spend too much time in secular colleges. They, uh, they think that it's terrible. A child should not fear a parent. So I did an experiment on my radio show. It's a blessing that I have a radio show because I can <laughs> bounce any idea I want off millions of people. And I said, call me up and tell me if you didn't take drugs in high school, why didn't you? And virtually every single caller said, because I, I was afraid my mother would kill me. <laughs> that is such a healthy answer. Mm-hmm. If you don't fear your mother and father, that's not good. It doesn't mean you're scared. It doesn't mean you, 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 you quake in fear at their presence because you, that you, that you, you fear they'll beat you up or something horrific or molest you, God forbid. But yes, you should fear them and you should fear God. In fact, fear of parents is the conduit to fear of God. That's why honor your father and mother is the, is the fifth commandment, the one following four commandments about God. The conduit to God is, is the parent. This is all brilliant stuff that is completely alien to the modern secular mind. There are a lot of lovely secular people but there isn't a single secular institution with wisdom. The, the proof of that is the universities are the, the places of the most idiocy, like men give birth, and America systemically racist, and they are the most secular institutions. It is not, it, it, it is not a coincidence. So the, the, these are a tiny, tiny handful of the insights that I tried to provide in the Rational Bible series. We're talking with Dennis Prager. We'll continue our conversation in a moment. Again, the series, the Rational Bible Series, the latest edition, Deuteronomy, God, Blessings, and Curses. We'll continue our conversation in a moment, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dennis Prager. He is the author of the Rational Bible Series and the latest edition, Deuteronomy. It's going to be out and available on the 11th of this month. That's next week. So check that out. Let me ask you some questions on some of the more controversial um, statements in the in the book of Deuteronomy, at least controversial in the 21st century, uh, which may indicate that we don't have any understanding of what the scriptures are saying. What is the uh, the commandment that neither sex can wear the clothing of the other mean today? Now, this would be completely unacceptable uh, in the secular universities, for example. But what does the scripture actually mean with regard to how men and women dress? It means exactly what it says. The 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 Bible, certainly the again the first five books, are rooted in the concept of distinctions: good and evil, human and animal, man and God, pure and impure, holy and and uh, impure, or holy and unholy, life and death, uh, and uh, male and female. The the abolition of distinctions, which the Radically radical secular world desires uh, is going to mean the end of the civilization as we know it, and it's already happening. Mm-hmm. People telling children that they're not boys or girls, they'll decide later. The American Medical Association announcing that the sex of a child at birth should not be listed on, on the birth certificate. Th- these things are truly sick. 
not to mention completely non-rooted in science. Every animal is male and female except humans. Are I supposed to believe that? I guess I am supposed to believe that, but I don't. God created the human being, male and female, he created them. It's a major statement in the book of Genesis. And you preserve those distinctions by your behavior. So if a man publicly, what he does privately is his business. But what? Uh, but a man who publicly dresses as a woman uh, is is mixing up what should be separate. And the fear of the Bible, which we no longer take seriously, and that's why we now have this, where we have a you know, drag queen story hour for five-year-olds, which is men, not even transgender men, men, dressing up as women and, and dancing in front of the children, so as to thoroughly confuse them with regard to the binary nature of sexual identity. Human is sexually binary. There is male and there is female, and that is it. If somebody who is male thinks he is a female, that's a separate issue. The issue for the the Bible is if you're a man and you're identifiably male, don't wear women's clothing publicly. You're, you're mixing what should remain separate. Now, if you think that society is better now that more men will wear skirts, okay, you obviously have a non-biblical view of the world. We'll see if your world turns out to be a beautiful one. Mm. Another issue that comes up quite frequently is whether or not God commanded the Israelites to commit genocide when they were commanded to annihilate the Canaanites that had lived in the land that God had promised to them. Yeah, well, that that's a biblical uh, problem. It's not a Deuteronomy problem specifically, but... Uh, and it, it really occurs in Joshua, which is post uh, the first five books, which is what I deal with, in which have their own uh, specific holiness. But I'll, I'll happily address it. First of all, the Bible itself recounts that they never killed everybody there. They show up uh, quite later in the Bible. In fact, the Israelites often would intermarry with them, which is how the, the subject arose. What we have here is much more of a um, of normal hyperbole. We use it in sports: kill them, destroy them. Uh, it, it uh, that's that's much more what is being talked about. But even if it were true, e- even if it's accurate, and we take it literally that God instructed, which he doesn't, it's Moses actually, but it doesn't matter. Let's say God instructed or Moses instructed the Israelites to kill all the Midianites or all the Canaanites. Let's say that is true. So therefore what? So therefore I reject love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore I I reject the Ten Commandments. Therefore I reject that law about not raping women in war and, and every other moral achievement of this book in making the best civilization that ever, ever occurred. See, if there were a law, whenever you go to war, wipe out every single man, woman, and child whom you fight, I, I will admit uh, it would be an, uh, an insurmountable obstacle to me morally with regard to the Bible. Because as I said originally, if it doesn't make sense to me, uh, I, I find it very hard to accept. But there is no such law. It's irrelevant to me today. If, if, if the creator of the universe thought that there was a reason to wipe out the people who engaged in child sacrifice, and it's constantly a refrain that these people were particularly evil and, and, and killed children in the, in the name of God, 
then, uh, you know, that's, that's what God would have wanted in one particular instance. You might as well say, I'm always amazed when people raise the issue of the Canaanites or the Midianites. Why don't they raise the whole issue of the world? The same Bible says God killed everybody on earth except for Noah and his family. Why don't people raise that one? That's more dramatic. <laughs> this is just a little, a little, uh, you know, nationality. That's the whole world. I, I, I never understood that. Why doesn't? Why don't you reject the Bible because of the flood? So uh, I, I don't know what to say. Did God command me to bring a flood? No. God brought a flood because he he wants people to be good. If people screw it up, then he's going to start all over. And he did with Noah, and we screwed it up again. Maybe maybe it'll happen, but there's, but he promised that he wouldn't at least bring another flood again. So we don't have to worry about that. There Not may that. be other reasons to worry. So uh, it, 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 look, if people want if people want to create their own Bible in their brain, I am answerable only to myself, which is what most people now today in the secular world think. I answer to my own conscience and my own heart. If you think that that is a better guide to a good world than the Bible, which guided the creation of the United States of America more than any other text, then, among other things, I think you're foolish and incredibly arrogant. So while I acknowledge a problem, the, the infinitely larger picture is of the most moral document ever to shape a civilization. Was there a favorite thing that you learned as you researched and wrote the Rational Bible, Deuteronomy? Were you surprised by something? Well, that rape law, I got to say, has always struck me as one of the greatest advertisements for the, the moral achievement of Deuteronomy in the Bible generally. It, it's, it's, it's quite remarkable. I mean, I could give you so many things. The fact that your animal has to rest on the Sabbath. I mean, what civilization in history ever said animals had to rest. This was such a unique development in, in the history of mankind that animals have to be treated well. You, you can't, there, there's a law that you can't uh, plow with two animals of, of different size on the same plow because they'll pull at different rates. I, I, that you, you can't muzzle an ox when it, uh, when it works in the fields. The, the, the concern with animals is unique in human history, where animals were tortured for fun, uh, as like cockfights and, and, the, and the burning of cats in, 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 in a sporting event. So uh, it, it's filled with this stuff, and that, that's why I, 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 I ache for people to read it. If somebody reads any one of these three volumes that are out now, and and it can start with any any of the three. It doesn't matter which you start with, uh, and, and then say, "Yeah, well, it doesn't it doesn't persuade me that this is the, the most remarkable moral work ever written." Then, then you know, more power to you. Then I would simply ask, "What would you like to substitute for it?" The New York Times. Hmm. Is there hope for the Judeo-Christian value system to prevail in American society again? Only if people who believe in it know how to make the case. And that, that's why I think this is so important for Christians and Jews to use, because it'll give them the intellectual, moral arguments that they need. 
Again, the title of the book, the series, The Rational Bible, the latest to be released on the 11th is Deuteronomy. Dennis Prager, thank you so much for talking with us, and I wish you the best of luck on this latest volume and can hardly wait for the next. That's great. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break, but we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Public schools were once a place where children went to learn reading, writing, and math. I attended public school, and I learned all three while there. For children across our country these days, well, it's no longer the case. Many students now start their day with a daily check-in survey that notifies their teacher about how they're feeling that day. Other students may take a student well-being survey twice a year. The surveys will allegedly help school administrators measure the school's climate. In Tennessee, student well-being surveys begin in the third grade, including 50 questions, and take about 10 minutes to complete. Tennessee students in high school compete a 104-question survey that can take about 20 minutes to complete. Hamilton County schools in Tennessee ask harmless questions such as, Once upset, how often can you calm yourself or relax? And during the last 30 days, how well did you get along with students who are different than you? By contrast, the Washington State Health Youth Survey asks middle schoolers questions such as, during the past 12 months, how many times did you attempt suicide? And how old were you when you had sex for the first time? This is their middle school questionnaire. As demonstrated, the questions range from harmless to invasive, and most parents don't know their child participates in the survey at all. When parents become aware and take steps to opt their child out, well, they're often met with a pushback from administrators. Why do invasive surveys take valuable class time when more than half of America's public school students can't read at grade level? Well, the answer is social-emotional learning, SEL. Well, the push for social-emotional learning in public schools has replaced academics with feelings. When SEL first took form, it was meant to promote skills such as emotional awareness, goal-setting, and empathy. There's no question that these skills are monumental to creating productive citizens. But who's responsible for teaching children these skills? The parents or the state? Well, to further understand the need for surveys, the SEL in schools, uh, we have to follow the money. School districts across the country hold contracts with a data collection company called Panorama. The company recently made headlines when it was discovered the U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland's son-in-law is a co-founder of Panorama. According to Forbes, Panorama sells surveys to school districts across the country that focus on the local social and emotional climate. Furthermore, these surveys are then used as justification for new curriculum for uh, from other providers that some parents call critical race theory and find objectionable. Panorama contracts range from $80,000 to over $100,000 and often includes language that's that uh, states that, uh, I started to say paranoia, Panorama doesn't partake in data mining, uh, but when data is entered to its database, it is owned by uh, Panorama. Other included language also considers the parents a third party, maybe even a disinterested party. The language is concerning to parents because they don't know what happens to their children's data and who has access to it, how long it's kept in their record, and again, what's, uh, what's done with it. If the public school system in America can be saved, well, we have to stop the data mining of our children and instead prioritize academics. After all, um, these young people are going to be competing against their peers in other countries who may not want to see them thrive.
Meanwhile, the Department of Justice told the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops Committee that attacks on pro-life pregnancy resource centers can be prosecuted under the Freedom of Access to Clinics Entrance Act, according to an email obtained by the Daily Signal. The revelation is significant as the Justice Department faces intense criticism for failing to prosecute those who vandalized, attacked, and firebombed pregnancy resource centers and churches, according to Catholic vote trackers, at at least 86 Catholic churches alone and 74 pregnancy resource centers across the country and other pro-life organizations. They've also been attacked since May and the leak of the draft Supreme Court opinion overturning Roe versus Wade. Well, until now, it wasn't clear whether the Justice Department, first of all, was at all interested. We've heard nothing. The PRCs that were attacked have heard nothing from the Justice Department to prosecute any of these attacks under the FACE Act. Well, in an email dated uh, November 2nd, uh, the Secretariat of Pro-Life Activities Executive Director Thomas Grenchik uh, updated the uh, pro-life directors and state uh, conference directors on the Justice Department's outreach on pregnancy center attacks. The U.S. Department of Justice has um, a task force dedicated to enforcing the FACE Act. Recently, the director of the uh, task force reached out regarding the ongoing attacks on PRCs. The director conveyed that the Department of Justice positioned that these attacks can be prosecuted under the FACE Act, he continued. He asked for our assistance in letting pregnancy resource centers know that the FACE Act protects them and in encouraging PRCs to report these attacks to federal law enforcement. So a heads up on that. Uh, It's rather breathtaking that the question had to be asked and then answered by the Department of Justice when... Uh, when it seems rather obvious that this is absolutely something that the department should be looking into under the FACE Act. The good news is, yes, they're covered. Whether or not the Department of Justice will choose to pursue the violent attacks on those centers remains to be seen. Some of the pregnancy resource centers that were attacked months ago have heard nothing from the Department of Justice uh, since the attacks took place. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing and engineering a portion of today's program and Sam Maupin for engineering the bulk of today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I hope you'll join us here tomorrow right here on the Georgine Rice Show. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.